Right now, we welcome our political commentators today. It is Dale Husband and Liam Hare. Kia ora koroa, and thank you very much for your time. Kia ora, Catherine. Kia ora, Dale, and Auckland. Tēnāhui. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Dale is a long-time broadcaster and Radio Wātea presenter, focused, or he has a current affairs uh, programme, among all the other things he does there. Liam here is a Palmerston North lawyer, political commentator and a member of the National Party. And, and we begin with the news that shocked and stunned and saddened everybody last week. Whaanana Ifesel Collins, Green Party MP, husband, father, family member, community member, leaving a grieving family, a grieving community, and indeed a grieving parliament. And there's no question when this happens, and it's rare, uh, it really does shock the parliament. Um, proceedings were suspended uh, through until, I think, resuming this week. Dale, your reflections? I don't know if you're aware, uh, Catherine, our granddad, Steve Watane, died uh, on the floor of Parliament with a heart attack back in 67. So we're conscious that everyone is vulnerable. He was a neat guy, and um, uh, I, I've had numerous interviews across the years with Efeso. Uh, He's a, very much a community man, and he always graciously called me Matua. I used to wonder about that. I mean, it's a term of endearment and respect, although I'm only... 14 or 15 years older than uh, than a vessel. So tragic, um, and obviously showing his heart too by the mahi that he was doing when the situation occurred. But it's a sobering reminder to us all too of um, the health of middle-aged men, and the whole of the South Side is grieving Catherine. Uh, that will be a tremendous send-off for a vessel. Uh, I saw some footage. He was the head boy at Tangaroa College, a proud... Um, college in Otara that he attended and even the young people there were very mindful, they knew him uh, and he served as a great inspiration to young Pacifica peoples because of his uh, involvement in public life as a councillor standing for the mayoralty and eventually as an MP he leaves a big hole uh, and I know even our son gave me a call the day that he had heard of a vessel's passing because we need to treasure our guys who have built up the uh, heart, the momentum and the knowledge that can help us navigate um, difficult waters going forward. He's a huge loss and as you say, Catherine, all our thoughts must be with his young family. He adored his daughters and uh, it's such a tragic loss. But we must move forward uh, to pay tribute to what he was uh, all about. But um, a wonderful contributor to, to uh, Pacifica and public life here in Aotearoa, and particularly uh, in Manukau City. So, Mumuera e Tirangatere Efeso. Liam. Yes, well, I, I had only met Efeso a couple of times, um, you know, doing uh, panels together normally on, on TV. And a very engaging guy. Um, obviously, uh, you know, he, he didn't know me very well, but he was a figure who was often in the news uh, because of his, uh, his all the hard work that he was always doing um, in, in the public eye. Uh, when this type of thing happens, you know, it is a shock. It's a shock for people who didn't know uh, didn't know him so well, as well as those who did know him, because public figures, you know, they are they live out the, the sort of they live out their lives in the public eye and we have a connection to them even when we don't know them. Um, it's a reminder of how fragile life is in this veil of tears. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it was good to see that the appropriate respects were paid 
you know, it's one thing when somebody dies at the end of a long illness or, um, you know, at, at the end of a good life when they've had the opportunity to give all that they could. Um, this is doubly a tragedy because of the fact that he was cut down uh, in, in what could have been his political prime. Uh, I was it was it was good to see that there wasn't um, we ha- things haven't got so bad in New Zealand yet that we had uh, uh, that we had had the kind of grossness that we sometimes see overseas on the death of political figures. There was a, some on the margins, um, you know. I think you always get conspiracy theories about vaccinations and things like that when anybody young dies. But for the on the whole, I think um, New Zealand responded appropriately uh, with grief um, for those who knew him, especially, but also for those who didn't. All right. Last week, uh, completely obviously um, dominated by this terrible and sad uh, set of affairs. Other things happened of political significance we shall discuss. Uh, The worst kept secret in the South Island, I think he called it himself. Uh, But Grant Robertson, the former finance minister, former deputy prime minister, leaving the Labour Party to take up a role at Chag University. Uh, Vice-Chancellor there. A lot of debate, and and there'll be very strong opinions on both sides, and then a lot more, a bit of this, a bit of that in the middle, as to his legacy. But in the first instance, Dale, the loss of someone of this experience and this skill from a Labour caucus that is regrouping and still dealing with the heavy loss. Yeah, Grant Robertson's a big loss to them. Uh, Would have been interesting to see how he might have uh, fared with the top job. But, look, let's pay tribute to the bloke. He's, um, as he said, he's got nothing left, uh, no gas left in the tank. But when we look back at his career, and and certainly from a Māori lens, and particularly in the last term, where he was responsible for directing more putea, more resource into Tao Māori than any finance minister has in history. So I started to feel that he was getting around understanding the dynamics of Tao Māori and how they can be supported so that our people could make inroads and uh, try and push a way forward for the, uh, for the generations to come. He wasn't without some humour too, which I think is an absolute necessity in Parliament. He was quick with the, uh, the, the jibe across the House as well. And when we look at how his performance stacks up. I know there's a lot of criticism, but look, these were unprecedented circumstances. The COVID situation came in. And when we stack up our performance against other countries who were similarly challenged, I think we can hold our heads high, as he can too, as the Minister of Finance. It's like he's gone off to a a decent job and a decent earn, but you know, you've got to say thanks to a bloke like uh, Robertson that did what he could at that time. Hey, it's going to need some reshuffling and some new talent coming through. But Kahol Talangatahi, bringing in uh, new blood is always good to refresh a uh, a political party. And let's face it, uh, they've got work to do, as we know, by the polls and Chris Hipkins' support um, slumping somewhat. But we're only three months uh, past the last election, so there's plenty of time for Labour to rebuild. The importance here is that that, uh, centre-left bloc start working more cohesively together because there are significant challenges for those uh, in the community that those parties represent. But it's a nod of approval, and and thanks to Grant Robertson. Good luck to him going forward. We'll come back and discuss that idea of what's happening on the left, uh, where there's a scrap of votes, really, as things stand at the moment, and what to do 
uh, if Labor, as it will hope, recovers some of its vote. So I want to come back to that, Dale. Liam, the debate has come down. The kudos has by and large been paid to the response in particular to the um, early stages of the pandemic and the, and the economic response. And then it all becomes about whether it wasn't so much whether it was too much spending ongoing, it was the quality of the spending. We should also say that some of the big reforms Grant Robertson had planned, whether it was his um, employment insurance scheme, uh, or indeed, as we learnt very late in the piece, plans for uh, some form of extended um, taxation, wealth taxation, they, they, they never got to see the light of day. And again, you could possibly blame the interruption of the pandemic on that. How do you reflect? Well, look, huge kudos to him uh, for the wage subsidy, right, which was a big a big item of expenditure, but what really saved the economy at the start of the pandemic. Apart from that, there's always going to be a lot of debate about how much, uh, you know, uh, problems were problems of the government's own making, how much of it's just reacting to forces and trends. Uh, but look, I, th- I think the, the big legacy that Grant Robertson uh, will leave behind or the big hole that he'll leave behind is that he has been such an anchor of stability for Labour. So here is a guy, he was never, he was a bit of a nearly man and that he could never quite touch the leadership himself, but over years of service and from being relatively, you know, there were issues where he was out of step for the public, but on the whole, this is a guy who was quite quite sensitive to public opinion, that he really did start to sort of fill in that sort of Stephen Joyce role. He was still very, very much like the Stephen Joyce of this Labour government. You take that guy out of the equation, you all of a sudden you expose the leader, because the leader fighting against, uh, not necessarily fighting against, but having to contend with more radical voices than his own caucus all of a sudden loses that voice for stability, loses that ally for stability, who's not the leader himself, but who brings that kind of moderate, centrist tone, who's got the mana within the caucus to be able to check the worst impulses of the party. And I think that more than anything, we'll see the legacy of Grant Robertson if the Labour Party starts to struggle to maintain cohesion after he's gone. This will be interesting. Let's look at the reshuffle. Barbara Edmonds coming forward into the finance role, and she's she's very, very highly rated for her skill set for the finance job. But it's also one of the really big political roles. She's up against, um, uh, you know, a finance minister who um, has a fairly a dominant role in in her own party. Dale, does she need to carve her own path in her own style? Do you think? Well, she can stand with her. Uh, head held high, Barbara, and uh, it's going to be interesting. We've got Chris uh, Hipkins, obviously, there, and then Carmel Cipollone, Megan, Barbara, Willie. Willie's experience is going to be important here. The vote for Labour coming off uh, working class and Māori and Pacifica, that hasn't waned, even though they didn't pick up the uh, or lost those six seats. You know, the support for Labour from the Māori vote is still very, very significant, and so we see a woman who is well-versed in kaupapa Māori issues. She's got a tāne Māori. She's got eight kids as well. So the welfare of Māori and Pacifica peoples goes without saying when you look at Barbara's CV. Um, she's an, an experienced tax uh, accountant, so she understands figures and the dynamics that work in the economy. So, you know, I think that she's um, she's presenting herself well here and, um, you know, it's going to be um, a great opportunity for her to take an important portfolio 
for Labour and to counteract some of the moves that Nicola Willis is making and the coalition government. I think uh, it was a good um, advance for her in the list rankings and uh, expecting big things from her. Liam, we'll get into some of those policies at the moment that uh, that are beginning to uh, come into ever greater scrutiny. But uh, right person for the job, and, and, and again, is it important to, to do it your way, perhaps, um, when, when you're taking on these high-profile roles? Well, what's interesting to me is that when you have this, the finance spokesman or the finance minister, is that you know the normal course of events is that that's not necessarily something that is um, chosen on the basis of technical skill in that area, right? So normally it's like a power, it's a powerful person within the caucus who is kind of like not quite, not quite an alternative leader, but who is a senior political figure in their own they're right. They're across everything. Right? They're, deli- they're, they're across they're, everything. They're accounting funds to every major portfolio. Yeah. What what Grant Robertson was a pretty powerful finance minister, but what was Grant Robertson's sort of technical expertise in the area? Didn't didn't have any right. But he did a good job of it. Now, it's, what's interesting here is that we have someone who is very technically qualified for it, who's got all the insight and the skills to do a very good job of what the job actually is, uh, but isn't necessarily that heavy hitter within the pub, you know, not certainly not in the public mind. This the sort of senior MP who is, uh, you know, a, a, an elder stateswoman of the party or someone on the way to becoming that maybe in the future, but not right now. And um, so going back on this, I, I, I can only think the last time you actually had a merit-based appointment to the finance role was was when National appointed Don Don Brash with Bill English. Mm. Uh, Bill English had, had Don Brash as the finance spokesman. Uh, and apart from that, it's always been, um, you know, sort of that second-in-command sort of person. So she will have to put her own stamp on it because she is coming at it from a different angle than the norm. There's no question about it. Uh, and if she does a good job of grilling... Uh, Nicola Willis on the um, on the technical aspects of it. Maybe that's the trend we'll see continue. Okay, let's look at some of these issues that were also making um, uh, headlines last week. The child poverty statistics uh, statistics, excuse me, have uh, worsened. Uh, I think there's, there's nine measures, there's three that are used legislatively by the government under the Act introduced uh, Child Poverty Act introduced under the former Labour government. And on two of those three statistics, things have worsened. This, Dale, uh, unquestionably, the cost of living crisis, high inflation, high interest rates feeding down into rents, um, a factor. What do you make of how the, the political parties responded? Did they respond very much with predictable positions on how to deal with poverty? And, and that's really the disappointment, isn't it? You know, we should, as a nation, hang our heads in shame that we are uh, still going down the same pathways that see so many disadvantaged families, and that number is looking set to grow. It's infuriating that young people are growing up without shoes, without food, uh, uncertain about their futures tomorrow. The problems that have been created since the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s have all culminated in putting the squeeze onto a sector of our society who are literally living every single day in Struggle Street. To get those child poverty stats and see that they haven't come down because collectively we can't come up with the solutions to try and address the gross uh, imbalance of uh, financial availability and resource and jobs and home ownership. This is something that our nation should be very, very ashamed of and it's, it's sad to see. And despite the change of government, despite... 
interventions of all types, the stats still rise. It's a, a very disappointing scenario we're looking at here, Catherine, and um, sadly, I don't think either or any of the political parties have got this one right yet. Liam, Nationals, uh, well, it's in the spotlight for the fact it's changing back the way benefits are calculated for increases, which I think under one statistic I saw will mean 7,000 more kids, it's estimated, going to child poverty, going to poverty, than would have if they had stuck with, with Labor's change plan. So they've got to defend that one. And then they seem to be coming out of the blocks also with work as a way out of poverty. And yet talking again with the economist Susan St. John, long-time campaigner, you get an extra $10,000 by taking on an extra job. By the time you've repaid your tax, rebaid your child um, rebate, paid the costs of transport, goodness knows what, that 10000 has gone. Are they going to get away with saying work is the answer without working on some of those barriers, Liam? Well, I think that they will, right? Because Susan St. John's, uh, you know, a very prolific uh, economist, but that's one economist, right? It's not like that's the consensus economic view. Economists disagree all the time, and the selection of the economist matters to what you're going to hear. That's hard data, um, though. That, that's, that's not opinion. That, that, is, that well, is hard analysis of what happens when you go and start working, the way we have abatement rates, etc., set up, the way policy is set up. That's right, but um, but in the longer term, right? This is and this is so. Look, you you have had six years where you've had a very targeted approach where we have been told time and time again that child poverty is the thing that we're going to be working on the hardest, and we as we have to admit that it's failed, right? Because where we've had successes in it, it's because general prosperity has risen. Where this is where where we've gone backwards, it's because the economy has been bad. The you cannot substitute anything for strong, continuous economic growth uh, for reducing child poverty. You cannot substitute for that growth a targeted approach. And so to get the uh, child poverty rates down, to make meaningful progress, you have to have that rising tide that lifts all boats instead of the sinking tide that's, that strands all boats. And, uh, and, 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 and the reality is, is that New Zealand has an issue with productivity, Right, we have a long-standing issue with productivity. Unless we actually produce more goods and services that we want to buy from each other, we will continue to have less, uh, less, less prosperity and more poverty. And actually, I'm sorry to say it, but work is the only way that we're going to. It's hard work to get ourselves out of this, this, this mess, and work is the way through it. But work might be. But a point of our discussion was that you've got a relatively low unemployment rate still at 4%, but you've got a massive underemployment rate, Liam. When people are raising kids, they're not necessarily going to be able to walk straight into a a 40-hour-a-week job. If they are, they're going to be paying childcare costs that are through the roof. If you're serious about work as a way out of this, your policy has to reflect that in enabling people to get started back in work without being worse off than staying on a benefit. Well, there's a moral dimension to that too, right? Which is that if you can work to support yourself, you know, you should do it, right? It's not a question necessarily a question of, um, you know, what, what's what's better off for me? I, if I could get the same by staying at home or I could get the same by working, well, I may as well stay at home. We hear from time and time again that people want to be in work, right? That, that, that people don't have that attitude, that they want to be out there earning for themselves, whether or not it makes them better off than staying at home would be. So there is a, it's not just a question of, What's better off for individuals? It's also a question of when is it appropriate to have the to rely on state support, and that is when you cannot do it for yourself. And that is a okay. value difference that exists across the political spectrum. I as think, a value difference. I think that's the two of you articulated um, 
how difficult it's going to be for near the twain to meet on, on, on that issue, on, on perspectives on it. Um, let's look at a couple of other things that are on the agenda now as the 100-day deadline looms. Um, and one of the, the key ones this week is the legislation abolishing the Fa'ora Māori Health Authority. It's going to be tabled this week, I think, just before the urgent Waitangi Tribunal hearing starts. Uh, Dale, your view on this, it was signalled that this was going to happen, it was part of the 100-day plan, uh, but um, it's causing further consternation, no doubt, the timing, Dale. Oh, very much so, Catherine. I, don't, I, I think that the government might underestimate the rearguard action here from uh, Ngai Māori. The deplorable statistics that we've witnessed in Māori health across generations was not of Māori doing. It's not as if we set up a system that would mean that our life expectancy is lower, that our um, uh, diabetes, our heart um, uh, issues are so much higher than mainstream. This is not a system that was set up by our people. Now, take a fire order and credit to the previous government for recognising there's got to be a better way. If you keep doing the same thing, you'll get the same results. And our people can't tolerate that for another generation. Our young people are increasingly savvy, increasingly academically trained. They see the pathway forward and there was great support from Tao Māori for the establishment of another vehicle to try and promote Māori health in a particularly Māori way. And while I say Māori too, let us be mindful that anything that happens with a cultural lens or dimension to it morphs into Pacifica, it morphs into new migrants. So it was looking at a health system that was a better way, significant investment, Great hope for what it could achieve given time and resource, obviously chopped off at its knees by the government who really unscrupulously are going ahead with the change of legislation even before a chance to go through the tribunal. Disappointed in the way that those who placed that claim to the tribunal didn't go straight to the High Court, but it just has those overtones or undertones, depending how you look at it, of what happened with the foreshore and seabed, seabed issue, where Dungata Whenua were denied access to the court system. It just seems very disrespectful that a treaty partner should go ahead in this uh, most contrived way to try and force the bill through before we've even had a chance to really get down to the ting tacks of what it was aiming to do and what it now won't be able to achieve. Liam, will there be any concern amongst those making the decision to proceed about about this, or will they just see it as, um, um, you know, ticking a box politically? Well, none whatever, and um, there'll be no concern whatever, and there, and there are two reasons why. So the first one is, is constitutional. Um, look, I, I, I reject that, that this is similar to the foreshore and seabed. The foreshore and seabed legislation expropriated and removed existing property rights that people had. This is a proposed legislation for a body that hasn't even uh, really commenced any work yet. So, uh, look, it's, it's, it's one thing for the Waitangi Tribunal to uh, to investigate Crown actions, but this is a proposed Crown action. The, the government, uh, which was just elected, right, at, with all three government, governing parties being unanimous on the point, uh, 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 has introduced legislation to abolish a specific agency. There is a process to go through, including a committee process in which there will be um, hearings and submissions and expert evidence. 
And, and nobody looked at the Waitangi Tribunal to put a stop to that while it conducted its investigations. Now, look, in fairness to the Waitangi Tribunal, they did agree, they did signal that they would expedite the process. But the reality is, in a democracy, you just cannot hold up the, 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 uh, the, the, the business of government for the sake of uh, Waitangi Tribunal investigations into intent that hasn't yet crystallized into a law so there's there's that aspect of it uh the second aspect is on the merits and on the merits um look i think it's a legitimate process to take uh, a position to take to say that uh the white nothing in the treaty of waiting requires uh that um that the multi health in particular be be ghettoized, be segregated from the rest of the health system, and treated um, treated differently, uh, because actually that approach takes risks too. That, that that approach involves the risk of that sector of the health system being um, neglected, of not getting the same funding and care and attention as the others. So there are reasons in principle why National can say, look, we don't think this is the best way forward. It is beyond doubt that there are particular issues that uh, that for, for Māori and health that have to be addressed with it as a matter of urgency, but it is not writ in stone that that has to be under a yeah. two-ministry model instead of a single-ministry model. Dale, I don't think Māori was seeing it as a, as a ghettoisation. They'd campaigned for it for 20 years, um, right? right but, absolutely. Yeah. Look, just um, Again, we're trying to get on and go forward, trying to understand each other better, and if you're so dismissive of your treaty partner and the goals that the, those who uh, we are, are trying to bring together as a nation, you know, Māori and also uh, Tauiwi, then it just seems to me to smack of disrespect for what was on the table. There might be some legal challenges and democratic process challenges, as Liam's touched on, and fair enough. But really, uh, if you're talking about acknowledging the intent of the treaty and the goodwill that it proposed, then uh, certainly it, it, it seems uh, disrespectful, the governmental attitude to this uh, uh, disestablishment of Takafai or to Catherine. Look, uh, Ngawihi Nui, both of you for the Kōrero, thank you very much for that and for your time with us today.